thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. The reading today is from Revelation 18, 1 to 8. The fall of Babylon. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for the demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins have piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Jim. That's a cheery reading to start the day, isn't it? Uh, just before we get into that very cheery reading and hopefully make some sense of it, uh, as Nick Lee prayed, uh, Richard and I are going to Cambodia tomorrow. We'll be back on Friday morning. would appreciate your prayers for that. We're meeting with partners, both established and potential new ones, uh, and uh, would appreciate your prayers for discernment. Uh, and uh, as Mark mentioned, uh, Brett and I will be leaving immediately after the sermon this morning. So if you want to meet him, you'll have to wait until the 26th when we'll be commissioning him, uh, and uh, he'll be around between services, and you can actually say good day. But I have one other really exciting piece of news, and Mark Coleman's going to bring it forward right now. For those who've been around for a while, you know uh, some of the wonderful dramas that we've had with our sound. This is an acoustic panel. It's damaged, but it's an acoustic panel. Uh, this week, we're actually going to be putting a whole bunch of them up on uh, the ceiling above the platform here, uh, and uh, then we're kind of looking at the next stages beyond that. But it's actually started. It's a sign of the apocalypse, really, that uh, 
we got these in. And speaking of the apocalypse, let's get to that. Um, so I'm just going to leave that there. You can come and shout into it later on if you want and just see how it deadens your voice. It's fantastic. Um, for those of you who are wondering about this, it's been two years since we began the process of trying to acoustically treat this auditorium. Uh, and uh, getting an acoustic paneling is perhaps the most difficult task in the universe, um, apparently. Uh, but nonetheless, so oh, Mark's going to take it away. You can shout in it someplace else. Excellent. Ah, thank you. Well, we're looking at uh, the book of Revelation. We're uh, into uh, chapter 18 at this point in time. Uh, and as strange as it may seem, Revelation 18 has a parallel in the Gospels. And some of you might be thinking, oh, isn't it that bit where Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and he uses kind of end of the world language? And that's not actually it at all. I think the parallel passage to this passage is actually Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, which goes something like this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That is the parallel to chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. Albeit, the book of Revelation has the volume turned up. There's some angelic figures and a couple of musical interludes, which kind of make it a little bit more exciting. But essentially, the message is much the same. So I want to have a bit of a look at this passage and kind of draw that comparison for you to help make clear what I think the, the, sim the symbolism and imagery kind of muddles for us a little bit as we look at the book of Revelation. So, in chapter 18, the section that Jim read for us, John sees another angel who shouts in a loud voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, because we've uh, just taken seven weeks to look at the book of Revelation, because that seemed fit and right, it was that, or 144,000, as I quipped before, right? We've, we've skipped some stuff. So we've, uh, last week, Tim McBride looked at chapter 13, and now we've jumped to ch ch chapter 18. And Babylon the Great is kind of new for us. We haven't encountered this image yet. So have a look back at chapter 17. Very briefly, let me introduce to you Babylon the Great to make some sense of what happens in chapter 18. So in chapter 17, if you have your Bibles with you, just in the first few verses, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So here we see Babylon the Great. And once again, John is, shall I say, telling the story again. Uh, scholars talk about this as a recapitulation. This is yet another symbol, another image of the two beasts that we met last week in chapter 13. The beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. 
Here we have a similar imagery for, uh, for Rome once again. In the Old Testament, Babylon became uh, not just the nation that had knocked down the walls of Jerusalem and burnt down the temple and taken the holy things into captivity and taken the people into captivity, but became the symbol for the evil empire. Any evil empire could be called Babylon, and everyone understood what you meant. Uh, throughout the, the prophetic literature, God makes quite clear that he raised Babylon up for a purpose, and he will bring Babylon down as well. And so there's kind of implied judgment uh, in this uh, name as well. And John uses the same thing here. Babylon the Great is to represent the evil empire, which for John and his readers was the Roman Empire at this point in time. And let me draw out a couple of aspects of this woman's depiction, this city, uh, and how she is described. First of all, notice that the twin sins that she is associated with are adultery and intoxication. Uh, now, of course, those can have very literal meanings, uh, to cheat on one's uh, wife or one's husband in a literal sense uh, is adultery, and to have too much alcohol and become intoxicated is drunkenness. Uh, Noah had too much to drink and became drunk. But in the Old Testament, both of these ideas, adultery and intoxication, can also be used symbolically. And symbolically, adultery had to do with faithlessness, to God, uh, and intoxication had to do with folly and judgment. And both of these are spoken of repeatedly in chapter 17 and 18. So you might be familiar with the language of the cup of God's wrath. Uh, the image is not just a cup containing wrath in it, but it was one of drunkenness, that the nations would drink of the cup of God's wrath and stumble because of it. And so here we have kind of mixed in with this picture of this great city, these pictures of adultery, faithlessness to God, but also of intoxication. And I'll come back to that in, in, in a few minutes' time. Notice also how she is depicted. Verse, uh, the verse uh, 7 that uh, I didn't read, John sees her and he was greatly astonished. And he's astonished because of her extraordinary wealth. I mean, she's sitting on a beast with seven heads and ten, ten uh, uh, horns and stuff as well, which probably added to the astonishment. But she is dressed in purple and scarlet. She is glittering, glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She has a golden cup in her hand. She is extraordinarily wealthy. Keep that in mind. And finally, let me draw your attention to the blasphemous names written on the scarlet creature. I don't know if you've ever wondered what the blasphemous names are. Uh, this is, they're not blasphemous words, so it's not like it's a whole bunch of swear words written on the side of the beast. These are blasphemous names. Blasphemy is claiming to do or provide what only God can do or provide. So you might recall the story in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus is teaching in the house and some people lower a paralyzed man right in front of him because they can't get to Jesus. They lower this paralyzed man before Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders who are sitting there say he's blaspheming. No one can forgive sins except God. And of course they're right, aren't they? 
Only God can forgive sins. So they need to figure out the math with Jesus, of course, because Jesus is making a divine claim there. But the blasphemy was not that Jesus swore or took the Lord's name in vain. It was that he claimed to do something that only God could do. The blasphemous names on the side of this beast are claims to do and provide what only God can do or provide. This is another depiction of the Roman propaganda. The Roman propaganda that said the Roman Empire is the empire to to end all empires and that we are capable of bringing and providing you with the good life. What do you want? You want security? You want freedom? You want prosperity? They are found in Rome. Be loyal to Rome. And as part of that, as we've talked about over the, the weeks, Part of that loyalty was expressed in the religious loyalty to the imperial family. Prayers to them, the acceptance of them as, if not gods, then certainly blessed by the gods. This is Babylon the Great. You with me so far? So in chapter 18, then, we have this detailed depiction of the collapse of Rome. And it's a fairly significant uh, collapse. And I want you to notice the emphasis on the lost wealth. So in chapter 18, verse 3, the the angel says that all the nations have drunk the maddening wines of her adultery. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Now, the kings of the earth have committed adultery with this city, seeking to receive from Rome what only God could provide. That was their faithlessness. But notice the reference to wealth. If you go down to chapter 18, verse 7, give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. And if you go into verse 9, which was not read for us, there's a series of woes, laments, for this great city. And notice who laments and what they lament. Verse 9, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every kind of citron wood, and on and on and on it goes. Verse 14, they will say, the fruit you longed for is gone. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. And it goes on. The third group also lament the loss of wealth. What's that all about? Well, remember that John is writing to readers who are feeling the pinch of being faithful to Jesus. And they weren't just feeling the pinch socially in terms of their kind of social networks and people saying, oh, you guys are a little bit weird, you know, those Jesus followers. They were also feeling the economic pinch 
As Tim mentioned last week, if you were unwilling to worship the gods and the emperor, you were going to have a really hard time getting into a guild. Because any guild, any trade guild, had as part of its ongoing rhythm worship of the gods and of the emperor. And if you're not in the guild, good luck finding work. And if you do not participate in the social rhythms of, of the, that day and age, you risk not only being seen as a little bit strange, but also subversive, unlikely to be hired. These are people who are experiencing the pinch economically of being loyal to Jesus. In chapter 21, which we'll end with next week, my colleague Karina Kremensky will be speaking on that passage, the city in, of heaven comes down. Do you remember what the city from heaven is made of? It's made of gold. It's so wealthy, we're told, that they even pave with it. We have so much gold, we don't even know what to do. We, we, we pave streets with it. It's almost worthless. We found a giant pearl. We just made gates out of it because everyone's got too many anyways. We got these massive amethysts and stuff. We just made foundations out of them because what else do you do with giant gemstones? True wealth, true security, true provision is found in heaven. So this is the message that John is speaking but more troubling than the loss of economic prosperity is how quickly it happens. Did you notice the time frame? Uh, the longest time frame in that passage is one day. But more frequently, it's told, we're told that in one hour. This is the ancient world. They didn't have stopwatches. They couldn't measure time in nanoseconds. They had sundials. An hour was about the smallest unit of reasonably measured time. This fall will be so swift and so sudden. And that's really, really important. Rome will not recover from this blow. This is not an economic downturn. This is not a period of recession before everything bounces back. This is not just a matter of a, a property bubble and inflation going high and the dollar going down, and it's all going to come good eventually. It will be over, and it would happen so swiftly that you will not have time to cash out before the fall. You won't be able to figure it out beforehand. And this is exactly, of course, what John has been doing the entire book. The perspective from heaven, when he looks at the spiritual realities that sit behind our day-to-day -day lives, everything, as far as John is concerned, is black and white. Tim mentioned it last week. You're either with Team Beast or you're with Team Jesus. You can't play for two teams in the same game. It just doesn't work. You're either signed, sealed for the beast with a 666 on your head or you are sealed for the lamb. Those are the only options. This is the black and white world. And yet, have a look in verse 4 again. A black and white world. Team beast, team Rome is doomed. It will fall in a moment. Team Jesus is where your hope lies. Very black and white. And yet what does John say? He actually cites Jeremiah 51. He says, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share her sins, that you will not receive any of her plagues. It's a curious little word, isn't it? 
Come out of her, my people. Because what it suggests is that John here is speaking to his friends in Asia Minor who are conflicted. Who are those who have a foot in both camps and need to be told, get out of the one and get solidly in the other. Don't try to kind of hedge your bets. Don't try to stay kind of a keep a foot in both camps. Come out of her. He's speaking to people, shall I say, just like us. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in Team Rome. It is going to fall, and it's going to fall so quickly that there's no hope, there's no future. Why bother? No. Invest in Team Jesus. Get out of that and be faithful 100%. Yes, it's going to cost you now, but ultimately, ultimately it will serve you well. Because when the doom falls, where will your heart be? And this is a hard word for us. Because I think one of the things that this text implies, of course, is that wealth and all that it brings, security, and prosperity and luxury, the good things, is intoxicating, isn't it? And our pursuit of wealth can cloud our judgment worse than wine. It can lower our inhibitions worse than any beer. And it can cause us to do things that really will cost our future. Doesn't it? It's a tricky thing for us, isn't it? So if this world and its institutions, the evil empire of our day, which as Tim mentioned last week, is a little bit harder to kind of put our finger on now, but if the same lure exists for us to buy into today as it existed for John's readers, and we know that the institutions of this day are doomed, why do we stay? Do we believe that this is the word of God? Because if this is the word of God, then what it tells us is all of the institutions that promise blasphemously to provide what is necessary for the good life, all of those will fall, and they will fall almost immediately. Why do we stay in what can only be described as a toxic relationship? Well, we stay because we're scared. We're scared that we might not be able to provide for our families, our children, or our aging parents, perhaps. We're fearful of kind of looking a little bit strange. We've been emotionally manipulated into being told that this is the only way to live. We're isolated from other people who see the world the same way John does, and the only people that we actually listen to and hear from are people who are heavily invested in this world anyways. There's any number of reasons why we stay. We realize that if we don't do everything that everyone does, that that doesn't look very good. That's a devalued lifestyle. But ultimately, I think we're just probably a little bit too invested in this world. One of the projects that we're supporting is um, Baptist World AIDS project uh, to help Syrian refugees who are in Lebanon. I'm not sure if you've ever thought much about the crisis as a whole. They say that there are 4.8 million registered refugees now, 
and 6.8 million internally displaced people in Syria. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Uh, the worst humanitarian crisis in a long, long, long time. But have you ever wondered why some people have stayed as long as they have? The conflict began in 2011. At the end of 2011, only 15,000 refugees had left. A full year later, that number had ballooned to 750,000. That doubled again to one and a half million by the time you get to the end of 2013. And that doubled again to three million at the end of 2014, which means that there were still nearly two million people who after four years of conflict were still there. Ever wondered what it would take for you to leave a place? Like, I'm guessing that the people who left first were the people whose houses were knocked down first. Your house gets blown up and your neighborhood becomes a war zone. You have two choices. You stay and die or you go and you might live. And I think the choice becomes fairly straightforward, doesn't it? Why do you stick around in a situation like that? Well, you live in a nicer neighborhood. You live further away from the conflict. You've got uh, friends and family who can support you. You have enough independent wealth to be able to kind of make your way for a fairly long period of time. And so you stay. And you stay. And you stay. And you stay. And then it's almost too late. John is saying, it is hopeless to put your faith in Rome. Get out while you can. Get out while you can. Don't wait until it's desperate. Don't wait until the last moment. Get out now. Get out now. Do you feel the pressure to get out? Or do we just live in too nice a neighborhood? Are we too far removed from the conflict to really sense the urgency of needing to extract ourselves from the world? Because surely we are as conflicted as John's readers. Surely we are. We must be. We, we live in the West. We must be. I, I don't know how we can't be. So how do we begin to, to come out of her? I think this is a tremendous challenge of Revelation as a whole. This challenge to be faithful to Jesus. Well, last week again, Tim mentioned that we can end up drifting away from Jesus, not because of one decision that we make, but because of a series of small steps away from him. I think we all know the reality of that in our lives, whether it's in our relationship with the Lord or even just relationships in general. Some friendships that were dear to us years ago have become less so, in part because we have taken a series of small steps away, or they've taken a series of small steps away that perhaps are geographical or business-related or whatever it might be. But if that's the case negatively, then perhaps it's also true positively, that we can become more loyal to Jesus, not by making one great big huge line in the sand, but by taking some small steps in the right direction. I don't believe that this is a call to sell up and kind of create a commune. You know, we can all live here. There's a shower in the back. We can rotate through. It'll be fantastic. That's not what we're called to. We are called to explicate ourselves, though, from our loyalty to the world. Well, how can we do that? Let me throw a few ideas at you. 
I think we need to begin by asking a few questions of ourselves. I think we need to ask, why do we do the things we do? We tend to leave unexamined lives. And so we kind of tend to do what everyone else does. With nary a thought to why we do it. We just do it. Well, why? I think we can begin asking questions about how we judge success. If we were to have arrived, what would that look like and why? We could ask questions about the goals we set. Do we only have goals for our careers and our finances, or do we have spiritual goals? And if not, why don't we have some that we can begin to implement in our lives? Perhaps we can then make some choices. We can foster generosity. You know, May Mission Month is one opportunity for that. But the best way, of course, to foster generosity, the best way to unclench your fist, is to practice opening it, if only for a little bit, and allowing some to fall out. Because as we give more away, we find that the, the pull and attraction of holding on to it begins to fade. Perhaps we can begin to buy smaller and less expensive things. Who would have thought? Going with second best rather than the best for the purposes of trying to remove ourselves from the, the, the manipulative markets in which we live. We can make meaning with other Christians who hold the same view as a priority so that we're not so isolated anymore. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to take a moment to pray as the worship team come to lead us in our time of response. And as I said, I'll be kind of ducking out right away with Brett. But do trust that this word will speak to you, not in condemnation, but perhaps in conviction. And the Holy Spirit might call us and question our loyalty, and that we might take steps, small steps, into a more loyal position before Jesus. So will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it still holds for us today. And even though the book of Revelation is couched in such marvelous and wonderful and obscure symbolism, we thank you that the message is itself quite clear. That we are called to be wholly faithful and loyal to you and to you alone. And it is so easy for us to place our hope in the blasphemies of our day and age, to, pro to seek to find provision and security and peace and all that we desire in the world and not in you. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak words of comfort to us, words of assurance and words of hope, and that you might grant to us the courage to take steps of greater faithfulness and loyalty. Whether that begins with asking questions of ourselves or setting particular goals or doing particular things, we pray that we might be on that day found as loyal and faithful people to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.